of all, all of you people that just love El Toro, if, you, if I hear that, I'm going to hear you too, and I'm going to look down on you. So, I invite you to have some Mexican food instead. So, as we are uh, getting started today, is this okay? This working okay? Everybody hear me? Okay. All right. Hey, uh, I have got this uh, jerry-rigged up here, and, well, I just, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I can plug things together until it all makes noise. And so... Whatever works. I appreciate everybody's flexibility, having our services in here instead of in the auditorium. Uh, There's no seats in the auditorium, so that's one good reason not to do it in there. Um, And uh, praise the Lord, no red carpet. So that's very exciting to me also. If you need some red carpet, I've got about 2,500 square feet of it. Um, If you've got a child you don't really like and you want to carpet their room in bright red, or you've got a garage or a doghouse or whatever... Um, then, you know, if you're just an Arkansas Razorbacks fan, um, I don't know. I'm just trying to come up with some kind of reason somebody would want 2,500 square feet of red carpet. And if that's you, come and get it. So we're just excited. Things are going so well. Um, the mission builders will be here to hang sheetrock tomorrow in the auditorium. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to get it flowed. They, they think they're going to be able to hang it all uh, tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. They work Monday through Wednesday morning. Uh, they think they're going to be able to get it all hung. Um, and if they are, then we will get it floated and taped and textured and everything later this week. And then uh, get it painted pretty quick. And then we will be uh, looking at doing trim work and replacing the ceiling tiles and putting in insulation and all these wonderful things. Um, the uh, front hallway, I assume that by now everyone has seen our beautiful front hallway. Uh, just, I, it's like a whole different place um, with that paneling gone and with the sheetrock up and the can lights in. and it's, just, it's beautiful. If you haven't gotten a chance to see it yet, I hope that you will go by there. Um, we still need, of course, to put the baseboards up and the crown molding up and you know, some finish work on it. Uh, hang the doors. I know that will be helpful to Brother Moon's Sunday School class when I can get the doors hung next week. Um, and get the carpet in and all those different things. But you can already start to see it taking shape, and I'm, for one, I'm very, very excited about it. Um, We will be taking up a special offering uh, next week to try to offset some of the cost of all the work that we're doing in here. Um, You know, this stuff, it costs money. Uh, One thing we're replacing is the, uh, we're putting insulation in the auditorium. There is no insulation in the auditorium right now. Um, and that means, among other things, that the, uh, I'm sorry, my wife needs this. Brother Don, can you take this calling? That means, uh, no insulation at all when they replaced the roof. If you stood in there, you could see sunlight coming through the ceiling tiles. Um, and when you want to know why our electric bill runs so high here sometimes, that's a pretty good explanation. Uh, so we're installing insulation. But to get R38 insulation in there is going to cost close to $3,000 for the insulation alone. Um, Because of the way the ceiling tiles are in place and they're just old, cheap ceiling tiles, we're going to have to replace the ceiling tiles really to to put the insulation in, and that's going to be another $2,000 just for those things alone. There's $700 worth of sheetrock stacked in the middle of the auditorium. You know, these things just cost money. But I'm reminded of the story uh, when Dallas Theological Seminary was first opened, they almost went bankrupt in their first year, and they were having a prayer meeting. The faculty was having a prayer meeting, and uh, they were going around, each one praying, you know. And when you get uh, preachers together, sometimes their prayers get kind of flashy, right? And so you've got these famous theologians, uh, 
Schaefer and others that are there. And then it comes to uh, Harry Ironside, who's a famous preacher that's very plain spoken. And when it's his turn to pray, he says, Lord, we know the cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Please sell some of them and send us the money. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the lobby, this, so this is in Dallas, is a true story. A rancher came in and said, I have a deal that just cannot go through. I sold some cattle and I was trying to buy some more and everything has just fallen to pieces. And so I don't know if you need this money or not, but I'd like to give this to you. The secretary had some idea of the gravity of the situation and took the check that he had just written into uh, Schaefer, the president of the seminary, who looked down and saw it was for the exact amount of the debt that they needed to pay. And so he turned, of course, and said, Harry, God sold the cattle. So um, God has the provision to meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory. We are not going into any debt at all on this project. We are paying for it all, um, but, you know, we can do more and do better when we're able to generously contribute from the way that God has blessed us. We will not go into debt uh, for something as silly as a building, but the better we can do and the more that we can do with our building, the uh, better we can serve people. You know, there are people who have no knowledge of God, who have got every excuse in the world about why they shouldn't come to church and why they shouldn't do this and why they shouldn't do that. And when we make our building a little nicer and make it a little easier to get around in, we take away one more excuse. If we're going to offend somebody with something, it needs to be with the gospel. It doesn't need to be with anything else. And so what we're trying to do is not to over-prioritize buildings and facilities. What we're trying to do is make it as easy as possible for someone to come in and place their trust in Jesus, because that's what really counts. So we will be taking up a special offering next week. Um, and I guess uh, somebody suggested we take another one up at the beginning of next month because different times people get paid uh, to try to offset some of this cost. So just bear that in mind. Pray about that. Consider that what God would have you to do. Um, and I know that what is a sacrificial amount of giving for me is not the same as what's a sacrificial amount of giving for you is not the same as somebody else. And so, uh, you know, I don't know if, if a, a dollar for you is what you can do. I don't know if, you know, if $15,000 is what you can do, you know. That's great, too. You know, I'm not going to turn it away. So just we, we trust that God has got it under control, and we're going to have a beautiful auditorium for our 60th anniversary service on February 19th. It's going to be a, a great, great thing. So, and With all that in mind, would you open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8? Deuteronomy chapter 8. As we look in Deuteronomy... Um, We are, of course, continuing our series. We've got one more week next week in uh, our series on the extraordinary, ordinary Christian life. Next week, we'll be studying the topic of personal evangelism, how the extraordinary, ordinary Christian shares the gospel. But today, I have got a topic that is uh, certain to step on some toes. If you've noticed, we are meeting in our fellowship hall today. And maybe you've noticed that the nicest building, that the nicest place of our building is the place that we come to eat. This is not a coincidence, right? When we, uh, our culture, our church culture, our social culture is all centered around eating, right? We, we eat this, we eat that. Uh, and the people tell these jokes about, um, well, you know, you, uh, you can preach on every sin except gluttony, right? And that's not a funny joke to me. That's like saying you can preach on every sin except lying or sexual immorality or whatever. Self-control is self-control, right? But in one area of our lives, we seem to think 
that we can just have free reign and have a pass. And that is in the area of what we put into our bodies. Jesus, when he began his public ministry, the first thing that he did was went into the wilderness for 40 days without eating. He fasted for 40 days. When uh, every time in the early church that they selected a new leader, that they ordained someone, it says the church fasted and prayed. But I would be willing to guess that if we took a show of hands, which I am uh, definitely not going to do, but I'd be willing to guess that if we took a show of hands, that the vast majority of people here have never given any thought to fasting and wouldn't know how to even do it. You would say, well, I don't even know what that means. You know, I just, uh, fasting, that's where you give up chocolate for 40 days, right? And the answer is no. (laughs) That is a uh, superficial thing. That's not fasting in the Bible. The Greek word for fasting is, brace yourselves, uneating. When you fast, it is when you don't eat. It is not, I'm giving up chocolate or I'm giving up Coke and I'm only going to drink cherry Coke for 40 days or or whatever kinds of uh, superficial things. It is not eating for a set period of time. In the Bible, we read of people fasting for a single day, for three days, for seven days, and three times, in the case of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, for 40 days. Of course, those are miraculous. But we see people saying, Lord, I'm not going to eat for the next three days. And to some of you, and sometimes to me, saying I'm not going to eat for the next three hours is kind of a scary proposition. We say, well, I just, I just don't know, you know. The, uh, about by the time dinner's over, sometimes we start thinking about a snack. Oops. Uh, and as we start to think about fasting, this idea, we wonder, you know, surely that is not something that God expects us to do. But as we read through the New Testament, we find, of course, Jesus fasted. We find that when the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, why do your disciples not fast? Jesus said, they don't fast because the bridegroom is with them. When the bridegroom is gone, then they will fast. When Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast, do not disfigure your faces as the hypocrites do. God expected that it would be part of the extraordinary, ordinary Christian life to voluntarily give up food for a period of time. And you say, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around that. Said the last time I gave up food was when we went to my cousin's house for her vegan Thanksgiving, and I said, I'm just not hungry. You know, voluntarily, we never give up food. (laughs) In our society, if we can have something, we want it and we want it now, right? When was the last time you told yourself no? There was something you could have, you wanted it, and you said no. We don't do that very often, do we? And when we do it, it's always with a specific goal in mind. I'll tell you, um, I'm going to draw a, a little bit of attention. Last night we went, Colleen and I and Mindy and Joe went to celebrate Joe uh, making his weight to join the Marine Corps Reserves. Very excited about that. And do you know that when we, in the weeks and stuff leading up to this, leading up to him making the weight that he needed to make, there were times that we all went out to eat and there were things that he wanted to have that he didn't get to have because he had a goal in mind, Right? We went to Aisles, and I ordered the all-you-can-eat shrimp. Mindy ordered the all-you-can-eat shrimp, and I don't remember what Colleen got. 
I guess she got the same thing, trying to make Joe feel better. And Joe got this salad. At Asol's, you know, you order a salad, and they go online to look up what that is. And so they just chop up a head of lettuce and pour some something on it, right? Applesauce or something. So they, so what's salad dressing? Quick. And so when you have a goal, sometimes you can tell yourself no for a little while, right? But the reason that we don't fast and pray, and of course fasting and prayer always come together in the Bible, is that we don't see a purpose for it. We say, what's, what's the point? You know, I, God loves me just the way I am, and that's absolutely true. Say, I don't have to do things on the outside to impress God. And that's absolutely true. But do you know that there are things that you do with your body that help you bring your heart into subjection? When we pray, if you're really serious about praying, have you ever gotten down on your knees to pray? Do you think that God can hear you better from this position than from this position? Well, that's not it, is it? God can hear you just the way you are. So you've ever prayed driving your car, right? You pray, you're driving your car, you pray, and God hears you. But sometimes you need to tell your body who the king is by bowing before the king. When you pray and you bow your head, you know, it, oftentimes when Jesus prayed, he looked up to heaven. You know, and you can pray like that too. But when you bow your head, do you know what you're saying? You're saying, you know, Lord, I am bowing before you. Humility, that's exactly right. You put your hands before God. When um, we come to God, the things that we do with our body matter because it puts our heart into subjection. And so when we read here in the New Testament about, I'm sorry, here in Deuteronomy 8, we're reading something that's not directly about fasting. So why am I applying it to fasting? When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, Satan said to him, turn these stones into bread. And what did Jesus say? He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus said, I don't need food. He said, I can. Jesus had the power to turn that bread, that stone into bread, right? Jesus did not have a moral opposition to making food because he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, fed 4,000 with uh, seven loaves and a few fish. Two different times, Jesus took little and made much food. He didn't have a problem with that. But here he said, I am choosing to fast for this 40-day period because I want to know that I do not depend on earthly things, but I depend on God. When you fast, very practically, in case I lose some of you in the next 30 minutes, when you fast, very practically, what you're doing is you're saying, God, I am so distracted by the things of this world. You know, and when you're upset, what do you do? You eat something. When you're happy, what do you do? You say, well, let's get together and eat something. When you are, you know, whatever it is, you wake up in the morning and you think about food or coffee. <laughs> whatever, we expect the things that we put into our body to regulate our mood, to regulate our strength, to do all these different things. And by fasting, I am saying, Lord, I am not dependent on the things of this world. I am dependent on you. Said, Lord, I wish that I knew that. I wish that I got as hungry for you. I wish that my guts ached for you as much as they do for food. Fasting is a way of bringing to yourself awareness of it. I guarantee you that if you fasted for three days, that you would learn that a lot of times you eat, you're not hungry. 
You identify your relationship with food. A couple of years ago, we had several of us that fasted from Christmas to New Year's. And then we had our New Year's Eve service here. We had our watch night service, and we broke our fast together here. And do you know, by not eating for seven days, the 25th to the 1st, you realize an awful lot about how enslaved we are as a culture to food. About how enslaved we are to food for, to do everything for us. And so when you're upset, why is it that when we're upset, we want to turn to a piece of cobbler instead of God? Why is it that when we're upset, we'd rather go down and get a piece of fried chicken than pray? Why is that? You know, and, and so what fasting is, is fasting is saying for a moment, I am going to make a radical break to focus on God. And we'll get more practical in a second. But Jesus quotes when he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He quotes here. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. So all the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. Give you a little bit of historical context. Jesus had been leading the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years. He came to them not in physical form as a human being, but in the form of a cloud uh, by day and a fiery pillar by night and he had led them so they had a, they had left egypt everybody is familiar uh in our culture if even if you haven't read the bible you've seen the movie right they, the 10 plagues led the israelites out of egypt and god said i have a land for you but because of their sin something that we will we'll talk about another time because of their sin they were not allowed to go into the land that god had promised them and instead they were forced to wander in the desert for 40 years uh, the Bible says wilderness, and when we think wilderness, we think uh, trees, right? But it just means a wild place, this desert, this desolate place. So they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and as Moses is getting ready to die, he is giving his final address here in Deuteronomy, and he is summarizing for them the life that they've lived. He says, when you've come in here, you will remember that God has come, and he has humbled you to test you to know if you would follow his commandments or not, that God has humbled you. Let's see how he did it. Verse 3, And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Jesus, uh, Moses says, when we were wandering in the wilderness, God let us get hungry. And then he sent down manna. But he did that so that when we were hungry, we would be humbled. We would say, you know, I cannot take care of all my own needs. You may have a, uh, a debit card, credit card, or whatever, that would allow you to buy a lot of things. But if there was a famine... It doesn't matter how much money you have when there is no food to buy. You are so dependent on God. You know, we get these, you see this stuff about honeybees. And if the honeybees died out, the uh, effect it would have on the global food population. And you know, you can go on a one man or one woman quest of rescuing all the honeybees, but it won't work. 
You are dependent on God's order of nature for you to live. And when you get hungry, it humbles you. You say, you know, I cannot provide for myself. And so in the Old Testament, when they were wandering in the wilderness, it says that God made them hungry. But Jesus quotes this verse in the New Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In the Old Testament, God said, look, I'm going to let you go hungry for a little while so you will learn to trust me. Jesus, in the New Testament, when he wanders in the wilderness for 40 days versus 40 years, where Israel failed, he succeeds. But when he comes into the wilderness, he chooses not to eat. You know, the Bible says if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. If you will humble yourself, you will save God the trouble of humbling you. And let me assure you, it is much more pleasant to humble yourself than to be humbled. When we fast, we are teaching ourselves the same lesson that God taught the Israelites in the wilderness. He said, I want you to go hungry for a little while so that you will know that what really sustains you is my word. Jesus says, when you fast, you choose to go hungry for a little while so you know that what really sustains you is the word of God. From a very practical perspective, let me just give you a hint because, you know, the Bible does not have any chapter that says this is how you fast. There's no like do this and that and do this. Uh, because it just like the Bible until Matthew 7, you know, for the first 65, or I'm sorry, for the first 37 books of the Bible, the uh, Bible does not really talk about how to pray. Just everybody knew how to pray. Everybody prayed. In the ancient world, everybody fasted. So the Bible doesn't tell you how to fast any more than the Bible tells you how to walk. Just everybody knew. But if the Bible tells you how not to do it, don't do it for attention, don't do it hypocritically, don't do it in these different ways. But to fast practically, if you said today, you know what, I want to fast for one day. First off, I would tell you uh, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, says that it is better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So don't tell God you're going to do it if you're not going to do it. But if you say, you know, I am going to not eat for a day. You say tomorrow, Monday, right? Why not? You say from sundown tonight until sundown Monday, 24 hours, I am not going to eat. What would you do? Well, you'd start to get hungry. And when you start to get hungry, you've got a choice. You can either look at your watch and start counting down. And, or you can say, you know what? This hunger is reminding me that I want to be hungry for God. This hunger is reminding me to pray. And, you know, if you are fasting because you want an answer to a specific prayer, like when they fasted before they ordained someone, then every time you get hungry, that hunger is not your, rem- your reminder to turn to the refrigerator like it normally is. That hunger is your reminder to turn to God and pray about that thing. If you're just fasting because you feel like your relationship with God is not what it ought to be, you're mourning your relationship with God. It is, it is mourning. Uh, when you are really mourning someone, I don't have to tell you not to eat, right? I have to tell you to eat. Whenever somebody dies, why don't we take food over to their family's house? Because you don't eat when you're upset. 
When we fast, we say, God, I am mourning that my relationship with you is not what it should be. I'm aching. You know, you say, how can I worship God when I don't feel anything? What fasting is one way to say, I choose to feel, you know, I want to want. My heart is not where it should be. And that breaks my heart. And so I'm hungry to be hungry for God. And when you get hungry, you start to pray. You say, Lord, draw me close to yourself. Lord, you know, the time that you would normally spend eating, how much time do you spend eating every day? Or cooking food or going somewhere to get food? Well, you probably, if you're like most people, you probably spend three hours. You figure by the time you include the preparation time and eating and cleaning up, if you didn't eat for a day, you would free up three extra hours. I'm guessing. You know what you could do with three hours? You can read four chapters of the Bible in 15 minutes. So in an hour, you could read 16 chapters of the Bible, right? So in three hours, you could read 48 chapters of the Bible. You could read Matthew and Mark and a little more in the time that you would save. <laughs> so if you, are, are you, you know, if you instead, let's say you just did half that. You say, you know, I've never really been much about reading the Bible. Just to give you some perspective. If you said, Monday, I'm not going to eat, and every time I would be doing something food-associated, I'm going to pray for half that time, and I'm going to read Matthew for half that time. You would finish the book of Matthew tomorrow, and you would have spent probably more time in prayer than you have in a very long time. How do we normally pray? Lord, thank you for this food. Um, Make it good. Amen. When I was teaching at uh, Bay Area Christian, there was a, uh, one of the coaches uh, taught uh, a Bible class. You know, and in his Bible class, he would uh, make fun of the kids. He would say, you know, I don't know who Jesus is, but uh, every time you pray, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Like, you don't even think about what you're saying. You just, you just spit it out, right? How often do we pray like that? We just spit it out. You've got these cliched phrases. I bet that oftentimes after you pray over your lunch or dinner or breakfast or whatever, if I asked you what you prayed, you couldn't tell me because it just came out. Just muscle memory. You know, sometimes uh, you drive to work and you forget. You don't remember driving to work. You're like, I know I drove to work because I'm here, but you just do it on autopilot, right? Maybe some of you come to church like that. Like you can't tell me about your drive to church this morning. Because you just, you know, you just did it. Mine was like that. But when we pray on autopilot, that says an awful lot about our relationship with God. Okay, husbands, this is going to be a difficult thing for you to understand, so I'm going to turn to the wives here. Wives, if you realized that your husband was having a conversation with you and then later didn't remember any of it, which may or may not be happening, how would you feel about that? (laughs) You you say, well, he's not even listening to me. He's just on autopilot. He's just giving the right responses to keep me happy. That's not not an award-winning husband behavior, right? It's an easy enough one. But when we pray to God like that, what, what a mockery it makes of God. So when we say, Lord, I want to be hungry. I want to know 
that I do not depend on these other things, but I depend on you. So tomorrow, or from sundown tonight until sundown Monday, I am not going to eat anything. And every time I get hungry, I'm going to turn to your word and turn to your face. I'm going to fast and I'm going to pray. What kind of a change would that make in you? If you could learn to be hungry for God the way that you are hungry for people. And the way that you are hungry for things. You know, I, I oftentimes... Um, it's it's really not fair for me to tell you to take a one day fast because the first day is very much the hardest because the first day is where you haven't learned yet what hunger is right and so every little twinge of your appetite you think that you're hungry by day two you're not really thinking about food day three you're not hungry at all and you can make it about a week before you start to really get hungry but when we set aside a definite period of time it is a time to afflict our souls in humility. Um, there was only one fast that was legally required of the Jews in the Old Testament, and that was the Day of Atonement, the day where the high priest went in and made a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the people. And it doesn't even literally say the word fast. It says you shall afflict your souls. You will humble yourself before God. So when we fast... We are coming and saying to God, look, I surrender my food. I surrender these different things. I know that Jesus expected me to fast. And I know that my relationship with you is not what it ought to be. And so I mourn. I mourn my separation with God. That's the reason that when Jesus was on the earth, he said, my disciples don't fast now. Because they could not have been any closer to God. He was standing right there. But for us now... It is so easy for us to focus on what we can see and what we can touch and miss the one who holds it all up. And so we fast to redirect ourselves to that. So let me, uh, we're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit. Jesus, uh, Moses, I'm sorry, talks more about their uh, experiences in the wilderness. He says, Thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord chasteneth thee. He says, God took care of you during this time. He sent down manna. He said, your clothes didn't get old. Your feet didn't swell. Your shoes didn't wear out. He says, you were taken care of. But in the same time, God disciplined you like a father disciplines his son. If a parent has got, well, let's say that um, you are with your child in the store. And there's your child and another child both throwing a tantrum. Who are you going to discipline? You discipline your child. Why is that? Because you care about them. You've got a responsibility for them. You look at that other child and you say, you know, their mom really shouldn't let them act like that or their dad really shouldn't let them act like that. But they're not your kid. And here's the dirty little secret. You care less about them and how they grow up than you care about your kid and how your kid grows up. If God disciplines you, he humbles you when you are not behaving the way you're supposed to live, when your heart is not how it's supposed to be, it's because he loves you, because you're his child, and he wants to see you grow up. But again, you can, a child can avoid trouble sometimes by correcting the problem themselves. Right? If I was supposed to clean my room, and I didn't clean my room, if I um, come back later and I clean it, 
before Colleen gets home, then I won't be in trouble at all. If I make corrections, then I can handle it. God says, don't make me get involved. He says, no. Verse 6, therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains, and depths that spring out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, and uh, oil, olive, and honey, a land where thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. There shall not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. Let's uh, ponder here for just a minute. God says, look, I let you go hungry for a little while because I wanted you to trust the promise that I had more for you to come. If you... um, ever dealt with somebody who was in some kind of extreme poverty and they eat a whole bunch right all at once because they don't know when they're going to get to eat again right Uh, when colleen was teaching uh at the when she was doing her student teaching um they came into first grade student teaching in first grade the kids came in and uh, they had to turn in their school supplies you know, because they kept all the markers in one big box and all the scissors in one big box and everything, so you didn't have to keep track. The idea was at least partially that you wouldn't know which kids brought the brand name stuff and which kids brought the generic stuff and whatever. But she had one little boy who hadn't gone to kindergarten who just started sobbing. Say, so why was he so upset? Because that was like one of the first things he'd ever had that was his. And he had to give it away. And he was so attached to it because he didn't know if he was really going to get it back or not. Now, of course, it was there every time he needed it. But in that moment, he didn't believe it once it was out of his hands. When we fast, we say, God, I do not believe that the best life is now. I do not believe that everything that I have is something I have to grab right now. I believe that whether in this life or the next, that you have more for me than this. That is a prayer of faith. It's a prayer of faith that a lot of times we can't pray. A lot of times we are so greedy that we are constantly reaching out. What can I get? What can I get? What can I get? So we have abundance. Some of you have abundance right now though, right? You got plenty of food at home. So there's a counter argument here he says beware that thou forget not the lord thy god in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes which i command thee this day he says don't forget god lest when thou hast eaten and art full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, wherein there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. 
And thou say in thine heart, My power and, and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. He says, One of the reasons God let you go hungry was because if you've never needed, then you forget God. We get self-sufficient and we get proud. When we have everything we want, everything we want, we have it now, we forget the God who gives it to us. And so, let me, let me just read these last few verses to you. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish the covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do it all, forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them. I testify against you this day that ye shall perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. He says, Israelites, God did not choose you because you were so good. If you become faithless like the people who were before you, then as a people, God will drive you out just as quickly as he drove out the Canaanites. What does the psalm mean? We, as human beings, need to know that we are so prone to idolatry. You and I are idolaters by nature. We want to see things that we can touch, and we want to worship those things. We are so in the cult of the material that we quickly forget. Because we can't see God. Fasting is one way that we do that. In Luke 2.37, when Jesus is being born, it talks about this woman who had worshipped with fastings day and night. She worshipped God by denying herself. Now, one other thing that I, I want to make clear is that fasting is something that we can do on the outside, right? On the outside, you can say, you know, my relationship with God is not what it needs to be, and I want it to be different. Say, I deny myself food so that I can have a closer relationship with God. But do you know that being hungry does not make you any more acceptable to God? No, God doesn't look at that and say, wow, you know, hungry, that's very righteous. I like that. The only reason that God responds to that is by grace. And you say, you know, why would I voluntarily give up what is rightfully mine? Why would I choose to surrender the food that I can't have? It's mine. I worked for it. I earned it. I deserve it. Why would I do that? Why would I let my stomach be empty when it can be full? You know, Maybe it would sharpen my prayers, but I've got everything I need. Maybe it would help me refocus my mind on my need for God. But, you know, I'm okay. I'm a lot better than a lot of other people. And then we come to the supreme example. Who was it that had everything and chose to empty himself? Who was it who sat full of glory and chose to empty himself of his divine privilege, so he came down and suffered humiliation. Who was it who was the life and is the life and chose to die so that you could have a relationship with God? Here's my question. One of the th- do you understand 
how costly your relationship with God was. How it required Jesus to suffer and bleed and die. Because we are so self-sufficient. We are such idolaters. We are so helpless. Do you realize that there was no way for you to have a relationship with God without God enduring pain, without God enduring loss, without God being emptied? If you are a Christian, that means there has come a time in your life where you realized you were a sinner, you realized that you needed God. And you believe that Jesus died for you. That you realize that God took your punishment for your sins, the penalty you deserved. He took it on himself. And he gave you new life and he forgave you. And he made you his child. So if you're a Christian and you've experienced that, why do we take that relationship that was so costly and treat it so lightly? If you believe in your heart here, from the things that I've shown you in the word of God, the passages that I've referenced, if you believe in your heart that you don't hunger for God the way that you should, and fasting is one way to bring yourself closer to God, to realign your priorities, why is it that you are not willing to be hungry for a day? What does it say about our love for God and our desire for him? So my challenge for you today is very serious. I thought I went to church to feel better. Sorry. Maybe not today. My challenge for you is very serious. Are you willing to make this adjustment now? And I know some people have got uh, genuine health issues and different things. You know, maybe you've got diabetes and you have to have juice instead of just water when you're not eating or whatever. Um, But some people have got some lame excuses. I had one person tell me once they can't fast because they have acid reflux. Like, well, that's... (laughs) That's, uh, that's very exciting. I'm nearsighted, so I guess I also don't have to fast. You know, Are you willing to say, Lord, I want to be hungry now? As we get ready to close, I wrote just a little explanation of how I would pray if I was starting a fast. Just to kind of model for you the way that I think, you know, from my study of it, and I've spent a lot of time studying it. It says, What I would pray is, Lord, we come to you, especially if we were fasting as a church. If I said, as a church, we're going to fast tomorrow, trusting God to accomplish this building program. I invite you to do that. You know, you don't have to brag about it. You don't have to draw attention to yourself. But I invite you to, from sundown tonight until sundown tomorrow, not eat and do this. So, Lord, we come to you, humbly recognizing that we are not as close to you as we can be and as we desire to be. We grow proud and self-sufficient in the illusion that we feed and clothe ourselves when we are as dependent on you for those things as the birds and the flowers are. We want to learn to be hungrier for you than we are for bread, which can only temporarily satisfy. We want to learn to draw our hunger from you instead of from the dissolving world around us. We want to learn that we cannot live by bread alone but must hang on your word. So we commit to, with your help, abstain from all food and drink only water for one day during that time every pang of hunger will not be an excuse to think of food but a reminder to be hungry for you and to pray as we recognize when eating is a habit we will try to break the way we mindlessly structure our lives around it and learn to make you the center instead As we take the time we would have spent eating, feasting on your word and praying, we are confident that you will draw us to yourself. Keep our eyes off the countdown to the next meal and firmly on your face. 
We ask for freedom from hypocrisy and pretension, so those who see us will not see someone who is moody and hungry, but joyful and full of the living God. Are you willing to take that attitude with me? But you say, I can't do that. I don't, I don't know God. If you don't know God, then now would be the time to say, I've never been hungry for anything except myself. I am full of myself. And if you realize that full of yourself is to be a rebel against God, here's my question. Are you willing today to say, Lord, empty me of myself in the most fundamental way? I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and God will save you today. As we sing and our musicians come forward, we're going to have a hymn of invitation. And if you'd stand with us together.